welcome to the Hogan Mystique. Today's guest is Steve Jenkins, who is a music and record producer and a Brit. So I'm, I'm going to be the only one speaking in the wrong form of English today. Sorry. Uh, but more importantly, he's also Josie's dad. So um, that's the yeah. most important thing today. But we do want to talk to you about your life, your career, and, mm-hmm. and um, kind of how you ended up where you are and, and all the great things you've done in your life. And I do want to plug your book here. Uh, he, he wrote a book called Steve Jenkins, The Futures in History. And um, it's the most thoroughly I've ever prepared for a podcast. So uh, it was really a great, great, uh, great read. So I encourage every one of our listeners to go out and get it. Uh, Josie has an icebreaker question for you, Steve. I always okay. do, but just just to um, you know make a point here, Judge, you're always talking in the wrong English. No, no question. <laughs> always, always. No, nobody ever calls me out on it until now. So. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're here You'll for. You'll be fine, Judd. Okay. <laughs> so our icebreaker question is, what's keeping you up at nights? Not a lot, really. I've, um, I've always slept pretty well. I don't know if it was because I always exhausted myself during the day and then just crashed. But not a lot, really, has kept me awake at night. Um, you probably do on certain yeah. occasions. Uh, like but, trauma. Yeah, but as for uh, as for work and and general life, I think I'm in a very I'm in a comfortable place now, and so uh, I've been lucky in my life though that I've always slept pretty well, yeah. so I don't have any kind of oh it's this or it's that or, you know. Yeah, I take to, life as it comes really. You can sleep anywhere too. That's like one of your superpowers. You can anywhere, anywhere we go. Bus rides, plane rides, anywhere he can sleep. It's incredible. I think that was because of all those years, you know, in the early years, uh, the touring um, and so, and and various styles of touring. So, so sometimes, you know, I was touring with Queen and I'm living in the best hotels, that Albany hotels or, you know, Marriott hotels, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing punk tours in, in 1977, you know, you're in a van and you know you learn to sleep on top of the speakers so you know in in those uh in those early days i learned to sleep everywhere and of course we were going all the time so you had to be able to sleep in the afternoon you had to be able to sleep at tea time for an hour you know just to keep going so yeah that reminds me i'm a good sleeper you're a good sleeper dad (laughs) it reminds me of hogan too because he at the very beginning was sleeping in his car and anywhere he could because it's just you know you're on on tour and it's yeah. um, tough when, when I've done a lot of great. sleeping in cars at the side of you know the freeway or the motorway you know when you've left a concert or something right. and then you're driving to the next town and you have the option of staying in a hotel or jumping in a car drive into the next town and then get into the hotel early and then you know right. crashing for the day so and sometimes you miscue it and right. it's four o'clock in the morning and you can't make another two hours. And you have to pull over the side of the road and sleep in the car for an hour, yeah. you know, to get going again. But that was touring back in those days. Mm-hmm. I, I'm always fascinated by that when I'm a music fan, certainly not in the music business, but you know, when we go to concerts and you see them put up these big stages and I know that there's difference between roadies and the band, but you know, they, they roll off the stage at 11, 11:30, whatever the curfew uh-huh. is. And then, they're playing in, you know, let's say they're playing in Dallas one night and then Houston the next night is, you know, um, for, for a, a guy that's always kind of valued sleep, um, even though I don't do it very well, um, it, it's just always been interesting to me to think about a band that, that rolls off a stage with all that adrenaline at 1130 and has to be ready to go the next night at seven or eight or whatever the case may be. And they somehow they've got to get 400 miles down the road. And um, yeah. so I... I just, uh, you know, you see all these big tour buses go down, but those, those can't be. I mean, that's not the Ritz Carlton rolling down the road. So you, you, I, I, I do relate. Where I, I, I've thought a lot about how people like you sleep during the night, rolling down the road like that. So yeah, well, you know, I mean, when you're touring, back in those days, you know, in the early days and everything, uh, especially in the UK, we do thirty-six dates mm-hmm. in. Uh, 38 or 40 days so you know we were going Mm -hmm. constantly and there was never a uniform for the road crew yeah Mm -hmm. as soon as the gig's over they start breaking it down the minute you 
leave the stage and they're breaking it down and you can see it all going out mm-hmm. backstage of the concert you know it's all going out there and and we're still you know normally because i was always with the band we'd we'd have guests you know we actually used to call it the grip and grin so you know you shake hands and you smile you know at the at the local press and radio and tv and so we'd come off the stage there'd be five ten minutes where you know they're either jumping in the shower or toweling themselves down and then i'd have one or two of the band members and we'd do what we termed the grip and grin Mm -hmm. um and then it it would depend on whether we were overnight staying in that town or we were moving to the next town and and sometimes some of the band would stay overnight in in the town that we just played and and then i'd go with either the lead singer or the lead guitarist the ones that do the interviews and i'd go to the next town because we do interviews mm-hmm. in the daytime okay um before the concert in the mm-hmm. next town you know yeah. so it, it it was always kind of different depending on what interviews and things you had to do you know but i've got to say you know i i mean i was in my 20s back then right. and i was touring and i was loving it you mm-hmm. know i was i was kind of wow mm-hmm. you know how did i get to do this right right you know so yeah. um and, and it was constant touring so yeah I, I i always think that's just um you know you're kind of running on adrenaline all the, the whole tour and um you know i'm sure the roadies maybe have some other methods of getting sleep or getting energy but but <laughs> yeah. um uh, you know, it's just fascinating. So I, I want to go back a little bit to your sure. to your um, childhood and kind of, uh, you know, here's where the wrong English comes in. Walsall is that how you pronounce it? Walsall. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll go with that. I I I I, um, I have a Texas accent, so it's not going to sound right. And you'd never heard of Walsall. I had never a heard of it, and not until I read the book. <laughs> I hadn't heard of it before. Um, so, what, what kind of town is that, and, um, and and where is that kind of in in the in, English countryside, or uh, yeah. well, um, it's nine miles north of Birmingham. Okay. Yeah. So you know, Birmingham is in the centre of right. of of England, and Birmingham is the industrial area. So it's, I guess, in America, the similarity would be Detroit. Mm-hmm. So it it's the car manufacturing area. Mm-hmm. So they always used to say, you grow up around Birmingham area. You know, you do one of two things: you either make the cars or you sell them. Okay. You know, the, right. the, and and so, but Birm, Birmingham is the uh, second biggest town in the UK. So mm-hmm. it's London, there's Birmingham, there's Manchester. Okay. There's always a little rivalry between Birmingham and Manchester on which is the s- second city, but it, it is Birmingham, you know, because of its size. Mm-hmm. And so Walsall is nine miles north of Birmingham. So I guess Walsall is uh, a place where if if you were moving to Birmingham for work, and you needed a starter home, you would probably head for Walsall because the properties are cheaper. Okay, okay. So I think, uh, you know, you know, when I was born and, and, and raised in that town, it was probably a town of maybe 80,000 people. Okay. Um, and and it's, it's more connected to Birmingham nowadays than it was back, because you know, Birmingham yeah, spreads. Sure. Uh, and so Walsall is almost in it, although Walsall people will never agree to being <laughs> Birmingham. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's a small town, really. Um, I mean, I don't think I went to Birmingham probably with my mom on a shopping trip when I was young, but I was not in and out of Birmingham until mm-hmm. later life, you know. So one thing I was kind of taken by was your relationship with your father. And I know he died when you were, how old were you when he passed? Uh, 15. 15. So one thing I, I was telling Josie was, you know, you talked about how he had a job where he, I think he had Thursdays off. Is that right? Yeah. And, and, um, so I think about times with my dad and, you know, my, my dad and I were golf and college football, which is a different football than y'all know. But, yeah. um, uh, I just, I wonder how those times with you and the going to your dad, you talked about going to Arboretum and going to these different the zoo and different things uh-huh. in the car, maybe listen to music how that kind of shapes your life going forward, you know, where you're, you're almost kind of, and I don't want to get too psychological here, but almost trying to recapture those moments as you produce music later on in life, those good moments with your dad. Oh yeah. I I mean, I think, uh, you know, a lot of what, what I did uh, with music, um, was started with my dad Mm -hmm. really in that, um, 
you know, he was, he was a drummer. Mm-hmm. And basically, he didn't have lessons drumming. He sat down on the drums and started playing and then got in a band and they became well-known locally. Mm-hmm. He was also um, a tap dancer. Hmm. And so he could dance. A lot of rhythm in this guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, he could dance. And, and he, I remember as a kid, he made a board and he used to put the board down in the kitchen and then he'd put a record on and he'd dance yeah. in the kitchen. You know, me and my sister used to think it was really funny, but, you know, <laughs> he was... He was fantastic, yeah. you know, uh, and uh, all the people that knew him said, always said what a, a great dancer he was. And uh, when I was young, we used to get all those TV shows from America on a Wednesday night. So we'd get Perry Como, mm-hmm. uh, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. uh, all those shows. Mm-hmm. And, and my dad had his chair, which was facing the TV. And, you know, he'd go, come on, little man. And so I'd walk over and he'd sit me in his chair. So I'd be five, six, something like that. He'd sit me in the chair next to him. And then he would, you know, as guest stars came on these shows, he would say to me, this is a good singer. This one, not so good. This one's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting this education at six years old on on these international stars, really, from America um, on you know, who was good, who was bad, who was indifferent. How much, I mean, I must have caught some of it, you know. Um, I, I remember that, uh, as you mentioned, he had Thursdays off because, you know, he, he ran the cooperative shoe departments, about eight stores he was manager of. Um, and so he'd work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, have Thursday off, work Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. So on occasions, um, which a lot of my school friends didn't, appreciate he would write to the school and he would say i'm taking steve um you know he he took me specifically to uh, a cricket match mm-hmm. and told the school that he needed the day off because he he wanted me to experience international cricket and also one day he said to me he wrote to the school and he said steve's having the day off today and i said to him what what are we doing doing and he went we're going to the movies and uh, we're going to see funny girl because I'm going to show you the greatest female singer you will ever see, which was, of course, a 19-year-old Barbara Streisand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be honest, all these years later, he was right. Sure. Streisand is probably the greatest female singer, you know, that there's been in the last 60, 70, 80 years. Sure. Wow. wow. So, you know, the, and the parallel with you, with Hogan, uh, is, um, you know, his dad died in early age, too. And so um, that that kind of having to grow up a little faster um, and you do and and having to become a man faster. Yeah. um, And it's certainly hard. I know when it happens, but um, I don't think you fill this book the way you do, maybe without that experience or at least that kind of, um, you know, early maturity. Is that that the way you feel? I mean, certainly that was a, you know, a life-changing moment mm-hmm. and you know uh, my father you know who obviously knew he'd not gone got long left mm-hmm. when he was clear of mind he used to sit me down and he used to try and give me as much education from his life to mine to prepare me for the future because he knew he wasn't going to be there mm-hmm. you know so he gave me a lot of life lessons in the in the in the last couple of months mm-hmm. uh, of his life, you know, so um, it it was important. And, and also, you know, I remember sitting there with him and, and you know, it was coming towards the end and he, he, he sat me down and he said, I, I, I want you to do two things for me, Sid. One, I want you to look after your mother, but your mother is actually pretty strong and she can look after herself. But the one thing you definitely will do is no matter what, and for your life, you will look after your sister because she's my little girl, you know. <laughs> and I took that to heart, really. And uh, I pretty much did look after my sister, I think. I, hopefully she'd agree. <laughs> but I certainly tried, you right. know, uh, through through all those years and when she had difficult moments. So mm-hmm. I was definitely there trying to solve the problem. You know? right. So it was, a, without doubt, you become, you become adult, mm-hmm. you know, almost overnight even though you can't quite cope with it you know it it puts different things in your mind Mm -hmm. all the time as you're addressing 
different situations. And I think you address different situations because of that to your friends, you know, who have their mom and dad, or, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's a different moment. And um, I think it makes you tough. Something's taken away from you, and um, you have to become tough and strong, mm-hmm. and probably determined mm-hmm. in the way you go forward. I mean, you know, I'm delighted, by the way, to be here. Anything associated with Ben Hogan for me is, you know, it's he's definitely a hero of mine, you know, because of his independence. Mm-hmm. Um, and his straightforwardness, um, you know, his brutal kind of dedication. Um, and and actually, the thing that I like the best, he did it his own way. Mm-hmm. You know, he kind of, whatever problems faced him in playing golf and the, and, and the way he went forward, he did it his own way and has total respect for me. Well, I, I think that, you know, golf, great golf and great music or producing great music um, and deciding to go into those fields is not for soft-handed people you know you, I mean, you gotta no. be tough and I, I i just think that you know if you if you'd lived in you know what's a nice area in london if you'd lived in a nice area yeah. in london with hampstead yeah if you lived in hampstead <laughs> with with uh, you know a dad that that you know made a bunch of money and, and was mm. there your whole life mm. i just wonder if your life had gone that way or you would have you know it's same thing with Mr. Hogan. If he mm-hmm. if he had had his dad the whole way, if he hadn't to go had to go to Glen Garden and Caddy and meet Marvin Leonard and kind of mm-hmm. build his life um, on his own, and I'm not suggesting you did it all on your own, but but you mm-hmm. certainly had to do a lot of it yourself, and, and that made yeah. you tough. And, and uh, what I what came through in this was this is a really really hard business that there's no guarantees yeah. from day to day. I mean, you can produce a Queen record and the next day be out on the street. Um, right? That's true. It's it's it, well, you know, especially in its heyday. So I think uh, the record business in its heyday, from so, say when rock and roll happened, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the mid fifties, that exploded all those vinyl sales and everything. Mm-hmm. And then of course it developed into the sixties. Then the Beatles happened. Mm-hmm. When the Beatles happened, that just you know, it went into outer space, right. you know, in, in in terms of sales and everything. So when a, an industry is generating that much money, it also attracts a lot of people that probably you wouldn't want to be in sure. that business, sure. you know, so, uh, and some pretty tough people too, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a lot of money generated. So, you know, it, it, it was a tough business. I never wanted any of our kids to be in the record business, mm-hmm. you know, and, and obviously they all knew, you know, what what I'd done and the, and the records and met artists and, and done all of that. And whenever they were sort of leaning towards being in the record business, I was like, you know, because mm-hmm. if you want to be in the record business, you, you have to, uh, you're going to get rejection mm-hmm. and it's going to be rejection day after day and week after week and you know in the end you have to embrace it really right right uh, and and fight your way through it and most people don't right and it hurts right mm-hmm. you know I, I josie hears me talk about this all the time I'm with my son he's 12 and he's starting to figure out which sport he wants to play mm-hmm. and he shows a lot of promise in a lot of sports and he's a perfectionist and so he's not like me in the sense of i kind of enjoy the journey of it and when he hits a bad golf shot, he goes, well, I can't do this, you know, and and, and, say, and I always tell him, you know, to play soccer or to play American football or to play yeah. other sports, there's room for kind of, you know, um, creativity. In golf, you're going to get hit in the face sometimes and hit it in the water, hit it out of bounds, and you're going to have a bad moment mm-hmm. and you're out there all alone. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do think that it's, it's hard to, to teach kids and hard to want your kids to go through that, but it's hard to teach kids that, Sometimes you got to go through those tough times, right? So, I think in every life you have to go through some tough times. Mm-hmm. Really, I don't think uh, I don't think any of us get excused from that. You know, it, it's I suppose it's degrees of pain. Mm-hmm. Sure, <laughs> you sure. know, and 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 what happens as you go down the road? You right. Know? Well, so I, I have I don't want to step all over Josie here. So Josie, your <laughs> questions. I, I will. I have a lot to talk to you about, but sure. I do want to get to some of the some of the stuff. But Josie, if you want to. I just wanted to add to that, that one line in the book that's when your dad had passed, 
um, your mum woke you up in the morning and said, Steve, I'm going to say Steve, it's weird, but Steve, yeah. your, dad's, your dad's gone. Uh-huh. Go get Helen up, get her to score, yeah. be brave. Mm. And I think nowadays when something like that happens, um, we go to months and months of therapy and um, you, we don't go to school. We, you know, we kind of sit in it and just like the reflecting back to you taking on that responsibility instantly of getting Helen to score mm. and your mum putting, you know, that um, responsibility on your shoulders. It just shows a lot of grit. I just think that's incredibly tough and I'm really impressed by that. Well, you know, my mother was pretty tough, mm. you know, so uh, I, I guess my father was um, artistic and calm mm-hmm. and um, only really spoke, you know, when he got purpose. And, you know, he never hit me, never, not once in my entire life did he ever, you know, cough me around the back of the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he always said, if I can't talk to you and make you see it, then I'm not going to bother. Mm. You know, so I will talk to you and, you know, you'll understand it or you won't. But if I hit you, that will not help. Mm-hmm. My mother, on the other hand, she didn't mind dishing it out. <laughs> and, Good balance. You know, yeah, she was, she was seriously <laughs> mentally tough, you know. And uh, I, I, But I always say that without my mom, I would not have achieved the things that I achieved. You know, mm-hmm. she was consistently brutal in driving me forward and her whole point was i had to honor my father's name yeah you know that was and i always think that that's that's the other side of that when you lose a parent early is um that the other parent has to take on both parent roles and so you know she did and you know you mentioned that and i i remember this in the book where you I just thought it was a funny quote when you moved to LA and I think your diary entry, you know, two weeks in, you said, can we cuss on a podcast? Yeah. We okay. Um, LA people are full of shit. I've been here two days. I know why everybody needs an ambulance. It made me think, um, th- this is a guy who's grown up and he's, he's had to be real. He can't be fake. Right. And so, and, yeah. and, and out there, everybody's trying to pretend like there's somebody they're not, and you've never gotten that luxury. That, no, no. I mean, you know, the, the, here's a funny, I don't think this is in the book, but here's a story, right? So um, I'm uh, growing up in a small town in the middle of England and you see Los Angeles, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the land of dreams, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, in the 60s, you, you know, as I'm getting to 13, 14, 15, it's the Beach Boys mm-hmm. and it's California girls. Mm-hmm. And they all look like goddesses. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all walking around in their bikinis and it's on the beach and the sun's shining. Right. And my God, this is paradise. Right. <laughs> so I don't get to Los Angeles actually until I'm, um, you know, maybe 26 or 27 years old. Mm-hmm. So it was a long time. I, you know, I, right. I didn't get to travel that early because I was working you know trying to get somewhere so anyway we're we're i'm going with i'm with a band and we're flying into los angeles and you know when you fly into los angeles you you kind of come down early and you fly across the city before you arrive in lax Mm -hmm. so it's a very slow drop like that and sometimes that affects people's ears so anyway, I'm flying into LA the first time. I'm going to land California girls. This is fantastic. It's all brilliant. <laughs> I'm now, you know, big time because mm-hmm. I'm uh, arriving in LA as a 27 year old. This is fantastic. Anyway, the flight affects my ears. Mm-hmm. And so the, I'm, and I'm in pain, you know, and the air hostess uh, comes around and she says, oh, this is the way we deal with it. They, they put cotton wool in boiling water and they put cotton wool in a plastic uh, cup mm-hmm. and then you put it in your ears <laughs> like that so I'm uh, <laughs> I'm going into Los Angeles superstar with, <laughs> with two plastic cups on my ears you know and it's dripping as well you know because the water's yeah. coming out of the cup, you know 
<laughs> and the rest of the band are looking at me and you know you can imagine i took a lot of stick of that for a good couple of years oh, I love that. my arrival in los angeles i love that i love that so your own british invasion i guess yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> i don't think it's the way mccartney did it. <laughs> that's why i had the long hair yeah. yeah um so i guess back to you you uh you you listened to the Elvis you said kind of grabbed you early on right and oh, yeah. just be, I, I grabbed everybody and, and still grabbing people these days oh, with, with, yeah. with you know um, with his music um, and then kind of the Beatles kind of make it all real to you so um, yeah and that was kind of when you started more or less in the business right where you started with the DJ um, well you know the Beatles happened when I was ten years old okay so a little bit later. you know so sixty three the yeah. the Beatles happened but that changed completely changed the Beatles changed my mentality in that here I have four lads that are basically street kids from Liverpool mm -hmm. and they go to that level of success and and when that happened over those first couple of years 63 64 65 and then they make the movie you know and and they are and then they crack America and they are world stars it sort of proved to me that it didn't matter where you came from Mm -hmm. right. It doesn't matter where you came from, it doesn't matter what your opportunities were or weren't, you know, if you had something or stuck at something, you could, you could actually achieve. Whereas I think before the Beatles, I didn't kind of think that was hmm. possible. You know, Elvis yeah, Presley, world star. You know, I'm not going to be Elvis Presley. I didn't even understand what, what record labels were right, then, right. you know. So, you know, to me, it was just, oh, he's fantastic. But when the Beatles happened and it was closer to home mm -hmm. and then, you know, they were on TV and they did not change their accents. Right. You know, mm -hmm. they spoke they spoke like Liverpool street kids mm -hmm. live on the BBC News, you know, and so I'm like, wow. Mm -hmm. right. You know, so the Beatles definitely changed everything for me and uh, and I think put opportunity mm -hmm. in my head for the first time. Mm -hmm. You know, I can if I want to be involved in music or whatever I want to do, I can do it. Right. You, you know, can't be as successful as the Beatles, but I could do, I could do it. You know, and so that created opportunity for me. Um, and then, you know, that inspired. I was addicted mm -hmm. to records mm -hmm. and music. There's no, you know, when I look back, it was addiction. You know, there's, sure. there's no two ways about it. I couldn't. I couldn't get through a day without playing a record, listening to the radio, going to a record shop. You know, whenever I went to any kind of town anywhere in the world, or through all those years, first port call, after checking in the hotel, straight where's the where's the record store? Mm -hmm. You know, what are they selling? You know, who's the local band that's selling? You know, and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. It's a total addiction. So, what was your first job in the, in the music business? Um, well, I was a DJ to start with, mm -hmm. so, um, so what does a DJ look like? What, what do you do in that, in that, uh, well, um, radio one, which is, was still is the big national mm -hmm. pop station, I suppose in the UK, but it started in 1967. Mm -hmm. So it exploded and it made the radio presenters who were called DJs back then you know, na nationwide stars. Mm -hmm. um, and so then they'd go out and do concerts. Mm -hmm. um, and they used to have the Radio One Roadshow, which was a lunchtime show. And it used to go in the summer, it would go to a different town all over England. So it came to Walsall. And an American guy, the Emperor Roscoe, I don't know if you've ever heard of yeah. yeah, Mike Pasternak, his name is. Okay. But Emperor Roscoe became this big star on Radio One, you know, and he had the, the he could speak American, obviously, so he sounded super cool. And, uh, you know, he was the Emperor Roscoe. So anyway, the Emperor Roscoe is playing a gig um, in Walsall at lunchtime, live on the radio. And I managed to get in there. The queues were just monstrous at this time. Mm -hmm. And the way I got in was there was a hot dog stand right by the entrance. And I'm at the back of the queue. You know, I got there early, but I'm still at the back of the queue. They must have been there from six in the morning. And I, and a mate of mine was with me and I went, I'm gonna go and get a hot dog. And then I'm gonna mingle in with the crowd. 
and stand at the front of the queue. Mm-hmm. So my pal, his name was Steve Baldwin, he went, I can't do that. I went, well, I tell you, I've got to go. I've got to get in there and I've got to see Emperor Roscoe. So if I've got to be a bit dubious in doing that, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I went down to the front of the queue, got the, bought the hot dog. And as I'm eating the hot dog, I just kind of <laughs> sidled into the queue as to where I was. And I got in and saw Roscoe. And again, when I saw Roscoe, you know, because I saw him warming up before the it went live on the radio and I saw what he was doing. So, you know, he's playing records, you know, it, it's not all that scratching business right. that, the, you know, he's playing records and he's talking to the audience and he's an entertainer. And, you know, I watched him and I was pinned to the back wall watching him. And I looked at, at the back, I can do that, mm-hmm. that's it. And so, but, you know, to be honest, it took me about three years to save the money to buy equipment. It took me about three years to build a record collection that was big enough for me to go out and play gigs. And uh, and then I started to play gigs, eventually working six nights a week, you know, so I'd go to the club at eight o'clock at night. Um, they'd open the club at nine. I'd start playing records or comparing cabaret acts or that were coming along if it was a dinner and dance or or uh, just a club venue and then I'd play records until two in the morning and I did it six nights a week and you had a day job too this is were you already at Barnaby Uh, Barnaby's was the first club that employed me six nights a week in Litchfield and then during the day you were working at a furniture store (laughs) it wasn't actually a furniture store you know you my mother was insistent that I paid my stamp uh-huh. and tax. So even if I worked at, because I was getting paid cash mm-hmm. in the evenings, you know, they, they, you know, from the door money that they got in the nightclubs, they then pay the DJ cash. So I'm collecting good amounts of cash. Mm-hmm. And she said, you're not paying any tax and you're outside of the system. So you have to work in the day. So I was trying to find jobs that, you know, didn't kind of, I, I mean, I wasn't getting in until three, four in the morning, and then I'm having to go to work at eight o'clock in the morning. So actually it wasn't a furniture store. I was driving a van mm-hmm. and I was delivering desks. Oh, and nice. then when you get to the place where the desks are, you have to put the desks up. I'd all, right at that point in time, I'd also injured my knee playing football. So I'm limping, <laughs> but fixing desks. And then I'm finishing work at five o'clock and I'm going home and I'm eating and then I'm going to the nightclub and I'm working six hours at night. And then, I mean, you know, after a few months I was completely exhausted. Exhausted. Yeah. exhausted. But, you know, my mum was pretty determined that, you know, I was going to have a proper job. <laughs> yeah. Even if the proper job was delivering desks, I didn't <laughs> think it was a good job. <laughs> On a broken leg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was a big swollen knee. Oh, no. So you mentioned your dad uh, early on would sit with you and say, listen to the, I, I assume Sinatra and those kind of guys say, this, yeah. this guy's great, this guy's no yeah. good. Uh-huh. Is, is that kind of the same experience with DJs? Did that give you a good education about this is what kids like and this is you know this this music really moves them yeah. and this doesn't or, or did you have kind of an innate sense of that already uh no i think i learned it in the nightclubs okay. uh, you know pete waterman who is partner of mine you know we made records together for years mm-hmm. you know and had lots of hits and all that kind of stuff and and uh, waterman always says the reason why me and steve was su- successful is we played all those nights in nightclubs mm-hmm. So, you know, you're playing all sorts of different records because I was getting a lot of records from America, which made me special, mm-hmm. you know, because I was getting sure, imports sure. from America. There's no um, Amazon back then. So. No, no. So, you know, I'm, I'm introducing people in, in Birmingham to records that they hadn't heard before. And so you're playing all sorts of different records and you get an instant reaction. Mm-hmm. People either move towards the dance floor and start dancing or they're on the dance floor and you play a record and they move away from the dance floor. And so you get to understand rhythms mm-hmm. and you get, you, you see what drives people and, and different styles of people too, on and off dance floors. And so Waterman always says, you know, what we learned, we learned in nightclubs and that's why we could pick 
hit songs and hit records. Mm -hmm. and so I, I, I mean, I, I played nightclubs from, I don't know, 20 to 27 years old. I did seven years of it. So, you know, not always six nights a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, you know, when I was working in the day, uh, towards the end, I'd do, I'd do the big nights. I'd do Thursday, Friday and Saturday, mm -hmm. you know, because obviously I got paid more for doing Thursday, Friday and Saturday than I got paid for doing Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So I cut the Monday, Tuesday and Wednesdays and played Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know. But certainly without a doubt, watching an audience live moving to and from a dance floor, critical. Yeah, and I think in all different types of music, right, different, I, I think one thing that's interesting about your career is, you know, you, you mentioned Queen, who you worked with, and you also worked with, I think you said Will Smith and mm -hmm. and like Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake who are all uh -huh. different and but there's got to be a common theme because you know just just like Queen it, it it doesn't hurt to have a voice like that right uh, Freddie special amazing but you know you see just for one person to be able to say Freddie Mercury's got it Will Smith's got it experiences got it and they're all different so i just yeah I, I, I mean you know i had nothing to do with uh the i, I just toured with queen you know okay. i didn't pick freddie or queen or sign them to emi you know just kind of make that clear i did sign britney spears to jive records mm -hmm. and i definitely signed will smith mm -hmm. you know uh, uh do you want to know the will smith sure. so, I, yes so, tell the will, will smith story it's <laughs> okay the, it's brilliant so i'm uh, i'm in um new york and there was, there was a thing called the New Music Seminar, where a, a lot of people from around the world would descend on New York for four or five days. And I'd started a small label called Champion Records. I was just trying to get, I had a few friends in America that were making records and I wanted to put those records out in England, mm -hmm. you know, and I was just trying to get into the American record business in some way. And I hired a guy called Paul Oakenfold. Paul Oakenfold would go on to be a, you know, big name DJ around the world and have a couple of hit records himself. But it, at this time, he's, you know, 18 years old and he's a kid and I liked him. And he was, you know, he was hustling in New York. And so I said, you know, oh, you should, you should come work with me at Champion Records and go and find me a few records. And if I like them, we'll put them out, you know, so it was all kind of loose and exciting and, you know, I'd, be paying him in cash, you know, go, here you go, Paul, just go and do that, you know. So, I mean, they were different days, yeah, right. you know, they, they were different days. So anyway, Paul brings me a record and it's Girls Ain't Nothing But Trouble. It's by Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Nobody's heard of Joe, you know. Mm -hmm. They're both still at school. Mm -hmm. So he plays me this record and it's got a sampling from a, uh, 60s tv show when you google it you'll okay. hear it but it's got sampling from the 60s tv show which i knew and then it had this, this great little rap about girls ain't nothing but trouble you know as we know <laughs> and, <laughs> and so uh, i hear this record and i loved it mm -hmm. and uh, and so i said to paul get to philadelphia you know here's some money go to philadelphia find out who it is buy the record for me for England. So anyway, Paul went to Philly and I don't know, I can't remember now how much that Will and Jeff wanted for the record, you know, it was, it was like $2,000 or something, you know. So I said, yeah, sent $2,000, got the tapes, put the record out in England. So the first hit record that Will Smith ever had was on Champion Records in England and it made the top 20 got to number 19 i think wow. um and it was girls ain't nothing but trouble and i only actually did that one record with will and jeff at that time because they weren't signed to me directly i just licensed their record and then of course a few years later mm -hmm. i'm managing director of jive records mm -hmm. and will and jeff signed to jive records and then we have all those other hits Get Later jiggy on. with it, didn't you? Sorry? Get jiggy with it? Get jiggy with it was, uh, Will actually did that uh, with Sony. That was just just after we'd, you know, f finished working together and Will was becoming the massive TV uh, film star, you mm -hmm. know, because that, that, that- Oh, he did the Prince of Bill, Fresh Prince of Bill, yeah. right? He did, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 
I, did I, do that. I remember when I was a kid, um, that was one of the first raps I ever was allowed to listen to because I was kind of in the nascent period of like gangster rap. But yeah. My parents yeah, let yeah. me listen to, to Will Smith and I listened to Parents Just Don't Understand. Yeah, we made that record. And, and, yeah. And I feel like that, um, you know, um, I could relate to that much more than I could relate to whatever Easy E and those guys were rapping about. <laughs> yeah, I remember Easy E too. Probably much more dangerous for me to listen to Parents Don't Understand than straight out of Compton. But uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, yeah, I, I, those were, uh, it's just interesting to me that those, you, was was rap even popular in England at that time? Or you no. kind of so so you grab it saying this just has something. So what is that something that you heard in that in that first record that you bought from them? Uh, well, the first Will Smith record or, or Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. I mean Jeff, fantastic DJ. You mm -hmm. know, I mean what Jeff did underneath Will's rapping mm -hmm. was world class. Okay. You know, I mean he's a world class DJ, a, a producer in. Mm -hmm. uh, in that way um so th that particular record was a lot to do with the sample that they'd used okay. and then will's easy way of rapping mm -hmm. but when i started to actually i the thing that changed my mind about rap because i listened to it early on mm -hmm. and it was pretty raw mm -hmm. you know that in the very early days before it's become popular it's definitely ghetto music mm -hmm. and uh, primarily it's black mm -hmm. so you, you know in the early days and I was listening to it and I could see it building and and growing um, you, you know uh, on the underground but that wasn't happening in England mm -hmm. um, and we signed an artist Boogie Down Productions this guy had got some class but he was a underground rapper mm -hmm. and I went to this function in England and um, there was a, a radio promoter there and uh, I knew her really well and she said oh you know I brought my sister along her sister was like 20 years old or something and she said okay she was doing something with some artist she said can you just stand by my sister make sure she's okay so anyway I was talking to her sister and her sister said to me what are you doing I said oh I do want to drive records and and so I'm thinking she'd talk about our pop records and everything. Mm. And she and she said to me, Oh, Jive Records, Boogie Down Productions. I was thinking and and she knew more about Bo Boogie Down Productions than I did as managing director of Jive Records. She told me the whole history of this whole thing. And I was thinking, if a twenty year old white girl is getting into this music, this music's gonna cross over. Mm -hmm. So after that evening and that conversation, I got very, I was then researching rap music and going, this thing could really happen. You know, this is this is kids street music. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we then started to get more and more involved in it. And then, you know, we sang fair few artists. I mean, I still love Will Smith because I love the fun mm -hmm. and the, and and the way he raps yep. and you know but a tribe called we signed a tribe called quest mm -hmm. and you know q-tip in a tribe called quest is probably one of the best rappers i've ever heard mm -hmm. you know so we we had success with other rappers that were more underground and well it reminds me of what you mentioned about the beatles they're just four street kids from liverpool uh -huh. and, and i think probably a lot of people saw the same thing in rappers that you saw in yeah in in the beatles is, yeah wait a second this isn't just you know, Barbara Streisand, you know, that can make it, but yeah. these kids that are on the street corner yeah. that can talk about their yeah. truth and whatever that is. Yeah. And it, and the, the truth on the street corner in Compton may not be the exact same it is in Fort Worth, but we can yeah. relate to that. Yeah. And, well, we understand it, right, don't we? Right. Well, you know, when you got to listen to it, yeah, yeah right. you, you got to understand it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think, you know, you know, if you're, when you get to a position of your own or, record label you're always searching for what is the new music mm -hmm. you know the in the heyday of the record business it was driven by young people mm -hmm. they were the people that bought the the records in their millions mm -hmm. you know i mean you sold records to uh, other age groups too but the driving factor was was young people so you had to kind of stay in touch with what was the new movement of music that the young kids were listening to. Right. Mm -hmm. I can't do that anymore. <laughs> well, it, it, and I, I guess that brings the one question I wanted to ask is, mm -hmm. and this may be a bad question, but 
what's wrong with the music business today and how do we fix it? So, you know, it just seems like that I love The Who and yes. they, they always told a story to me. Yeah, yeah. And the, the bands I love tell stories and, and, and you can feel it in their emotion. Now I feel like a lot of bands are, they care about making money. And um, and not mm. not the who didn't care about making money, yeah, yeah. But it just seems like that maybe it's not as driven by the young, you know, kind of the young experience anymore, and it may be driven by, by something else. And maybe I'm wrong on that, but you tell me. No, well, I think that the I think the glory years. Every industry has glory years, you know, if they make it big. So I think the glory years of the record business were 1955, probably when it's when rock and roll happened and that went through really until the new rock and roll happened which was the internet mm -hmm. so you know when that kind of got a grip around 2000 mm -hmm. and and then they're they're starting to be able to deliver music in a different way napster and that kind of stuff right? well you know i remember those guys from napster they came over and they they got the you know, all the big guys from the record business at, at the time, we went to this thing mm -hmm. and the guys from Napster come on stage and they're talking about how the world is going to be, you know, with the internet and everything. And um, a lot of heads of record companies like Warner Brothers and Sony and people like that. And I'm sitting with all of those guys and they're going, no, that's never going to happen. You know, and, uh, no, no. and the thing that got me was this kid is standing on stage addressing the record business we're powerful dudes at this time you know we're the dream makers we're making people happen or not happen and we're paying them so you know we're big time guys this kid gets on stage and basically tells us we're gonna if you don't do a deal with us we're gonna take your business and we're gonna run it and you're gonna be left with nothing and i thought well the other guys get upset about it you know and they want this is never gonna happen and i'm sitting there i'm thinking this kid's got that confidence to address the record business like that and then tell you he's going to take your business away from you i i, I said to a couple of boys you mentioned Doris, record like that. I, said to him, I think we should go and talk to this kid you know because he's either got a massive ego or really big balls <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that on the I podcast. Sure, but, okay. yeah, oh, yeah, right. So you, you can cut it anyway, John. But so and uh, and you know, sure enough, that that movement, which is why I always say that the internet is the new rock and roll mm -hmm. for those kids that were around at that time. It is their rock and roll. Mm -hmm. It changed their life, just like rock and roll did in the fifties. You know, it changed their life, and that in itself change the record business so what we knew as the record business is never ever going to be there again it's gone okay you know it was 1959 to 2002 probably mm -hmm. um and since then it has evolved and come into a different well some parts of it are good though you know no i i, I was being a little bit hyperbolic there but, yeah, yeah and i and i i do think you know when i was a kid we would listen to whole albums all the way through you yes, know, you get an album and you go in your bedroom and you sit there and listen to it and think about some girl that broke your heart or whatever. Exactly, you and you're looking at the cover too. That's right, and reading all the sleeve notes. And, right, yeah. and I still love being even you know I'm, I'm a big Pearl Jam fan, and they still mm. try to recreate that experience by putting out albums and not singles. Right. Yes, but I I also understand that my kids, no way they're ever going to listen to. They love when singles come out because that's a, that's a new song for them. And then they, yeah. they listen to it, they digest it, then they're ready for the next one. You know, and, it's, and they, they, yeah. they just, the, the kids today, if it's a, if it's a youth driven business, yeah. aren't gonna listen to an album. So they have to react to that, right? Not anymore, that's, um, but that's the way the industry has developed really. And also, you know, I also think it's to do with, you know, Twitter and Instagram and, TikTok. you know, TikTok, yeah, yeah. all those fast moving things. Mm -hmm. And so, the young people of today that they're, they're changing their mind every few seconds if you know what i mean it's hitting them mm -hmm. off all the and they're all checking all these different things um platforms mm -hmm. and then you know I, I watch them too you know uh, sometimes josie when you were younger you know when you were 13 i used to watch you a lot on 
you know what records you were interested in and you know uh, and it it is quick mm -hmm. it's always quick mm -hmm. you know if they don't get it in you know 20 seconds they move on right yeah. you know whereas i think you know certainly with my generation we'd sit and we'd put the record on and we'd consider the record you know whether we liked it or whether we didn't yeah. we'd consider it for a lot longer it's not it wasn't fast and impulsive like it it is, it, I mean, it is today i'm i'm like that too if, mm. if the song doesn't catch me in the first 30 seconds i move on oh, oh. I, yeah. you're a young person i'm talking about i'm so. a young star. <laughs> the, the, yeah, you know, the I, you know the thing I like though, Josie, about the the new way that people listen to music or whatever is a young person today, when they listen to records, you know, it can be an artist of this moment, like you went to a Taylor Swift the other day. It could yeah. be Taylor Swift mm -hmm. or it could be the Rolling Stones from 1964. That's exactly true. And they are, there great. is no time difference between those records you know they either like yes. it or they don't like it that's and really I think valid. there's I think there's something really positive about that yeah know. I mean on my way here um I listened to an InSync song and then a Taylor Swift song mm -hmm. and then Purple Rain by Prince yeah yeah, yeah. And it's exactly true I my yeah. I'm interested in all sorts of different music but it does have to yeah. catch me and you know Prince was really little you know I, I you know, know I Prince. stood next to Prince and he was he was here, you know, and the only reason I met Prince was he was he was playing a gig in Edinburgh and um, he's he wasn't selling tickets, you know, it was a big gig and he wasn't selling enough tickets and I had a band uh, called the time frequency that only sold records in Scotland, but they were massive in Scotland. They didn't really sell records in England. And so they said to me, can you get the time frequency? Prince's people said to me, can you get the time frequency to play the Edinburgh gig? Cause that'll bring the crowd. So I went, yeah, sure, you know, so went up there and then, you know, Prince, Prince. invited me to say hello. And so uh, he, ca he came down and, uh, you know, I was going up to his uh, suite or whatever and uh, got in the lift and I'm standing in the lift and I'm thinking, this guy is really small, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, he comes on stage and the way he moves and everything, presence? you think he's a big lad, he's not, you know, he's really small. Anyway, I digress. I I think, no, sorry, no. I went off. No, no, I no, I, I, you can, anytime you want to talk about, I think Prince is a genius. So oh, I, there's I, no question. I just, no question. And, and he's an interesting guy. And it kind of brings me to the question of how do you know when you, when you see a star, because I think that no matter what genre of music you like you look at a guy like Prince, you look at the Rolling Stones, or you look at Britney, or you look Taylor at Taylor Swift, Swift right? And and I, I always tell people, my daughter is seven, and she loves Taylor Swift, yeah. and I don't get it, but she makes my daughter smile. That's all I care hey, about. You're talking to a Swifty here, right? <laughs> gentle, gentle with your choice of words. But even if that's not my type of music, I know that Taylor Swift's a star. I look at her, and I don't right. know how to how to quantify that. Do you know how to how to say that? Like, what makes her a star what makes prince a star other than just raw talent but is there something that kind of unique that goes through all of them you know i think uh, when you look at the record business and when you look at artists the whole thing is based around the song mm -hmm. you know to start with so if all these artists are unknown at some point mm -hmm. but if you look at the first record of every artist that succeeds you know the first one to hit they may put out a couple that don't hit while they're learning the game, but the first one that hits, this, you should then. So whatever Taylor Smith's first Swift, Swift sorry, <laughs> whatever Taylor's first record was that hit big, mm -hmm. if you go and look, listen to that record and analyze it, you will find some treasures in that record. You know, there's, there are moments in that record that appealed to millions of people whatever it might be it might be the lyric it you know it might be the the chorus line or it may just be a couple of lines in the verse that trigger emotion to millions of people i think she's great by the way yeah i is. think she's great and the the I, I listen to a lot of her early stuff not so much of the stuff after when she moved to new york mm -hmm. when she went more kind of pop but when she started in the country stuff 
you know, that kid could write. That kid could write She's, at 17, 18 years old. She could write. You know, and also talking, just really quick to go back to albums, um, Taylor Swift is the only artist where I listen to the entire album still. Mm-hmm. And I will listen to it on repeats. And I fall in love with every song at a different stage, stage in my life. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are songs that I didn't relate to in her Red album that I now relate to. So it's, a, mm-hmm. it's amazing when you go back with her. It's well, she, interesting. She, she writes life stories, that's for yeah. sure. And I, you know, she's one of those that, that I always wonder about, you know, Madonna um, reinvented herself all the time. Oh, 10 times. And Taylor's kind of stayed kind of who she is. She's grown up, right? Mm-hmm. But she's kind of stayed who she is. And so I, I always, if I were in your position and, and Madonna came to me and said, you know, I've been uh, the material girl now, and now I'm going to be the truth or dare girl or whatever I'm going to be. And be like, well, are we throwing away the, the golden goose here? Uh, and it just and so there's a, a certain amount of genius in being able to reinvent yourself too and be something you're not. I I think you can only do that over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. I think you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I met Madonna a couple of times when you know she did the whole Britney promotion thing mm-hmm. when Britney many years ago when Britney was having a tough time. Madonna stepped in, yeah. you know, wearing Britney t-shirts. And right. doing, so I met her a couple of times. But I think longevity enables you to reinvent yourself Mm -hmm. and probably the greatest of all was David Bowie Mm -hmm. because Bowie reinvented himself all the time where and there was a lot of times I thought you don't need to do that Mm -hmm. David you know you you're a big star you're a big star all those records that you songs that you've written you don't need to do that but that theatrical part was part of Bowie Mm -hmm. as well and I think Madonna was you know fairly brutal uh, in in the way she pursued her career, you know. But you also got to remember, everybody turned Madonna down. You know, Madonna, although we all look at her as this iconic um, woman, mm-hmm. you know, in the early days, that girl got turned down by everybody. I mean, nobody wanted Madonna. Not good enough singer, not good enough dancer, not you know, not a songwriter at the time. I think I'm doing the table tapping yeah, thing you, you spoke me about. It's all that rhythm. Yeah, yeah. Did you see me? I was like, yeah. you're doing it. Yeah. You're, you're, you're Stop tapping the stop table. Tapping Your the table taps are on the two and the four. My arm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess have there been have there been people that you've seen? I guess there have been, but people that come to mind that you say, man, that person should have made it, and they and oh, and, oh. and they didn't. Always, okay. You know, I, I think there's a lot of people that uh, were, are, are incredibly talented um, as guitar players or songwriters, uh, but they have something that's not. You know, they can't give everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They they can't be open enough to do it. And no, I'm going to do it, but it's got to be in this way. And I've sat with many artists and gone, if you do it that way, it ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're now doing it for you. And you have to be doing it for the public. Mm-hmm. If you can't transpose that into doing it for the public, we ain't going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, interesting. You know, so, uh, and I've had many of those conversations, Josie, with a lot of artists too. And some of them, it broke my heart, you know, because I'm thinking, this kid's really good, but he can't open his mind. Do you think that comes from a place of fear or ego or? A combination of all those things, yeah. I think. Lack of understanding, ego, fear, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I'm I'm one of these weak people, not from LA, but from here, that needs an analyst, like you would say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't being offensive. No, no, I, I would say, you know, one thing you know you learn is is that you know the, the true like intimacy is in vulnerability, and I think that a lot of these uh, artists have connected with. That's that's the to me as a amateur, not not like you, a professional. But that's the one th- thread you see through great artists is that they really connect with their their fans. Mm. And I just wonder if some they of these do. people, because of that fear, they don't connect because they're like, well, I'm going to do it this way, even though there's this, this whole swath of people that may like me if I just opened up a little bit more on, on this other. Yeah, you know, you know the, just flipping that just slightly, you know the easiest people to deal with? McCartney. Mm-hmm. El- I'm just tapping the table again. No, no, McCartney. It. Elton John, mm-hmm. you know those really big stars. Mm-hmm. When when you when you kind of work with them, mm-hmm. they're they're everyday guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know they're not they're not big on themselves. 
um, and and you can communicate with them easily. And then when you start to do business with them and you talk about how are we going to achieve this, or you know you're planning an album and singles and all the rest of it, they get it. Yeah, mm. they get it. There's no argument. They understand what they're doing. You know, and and there is a, a difference between that kind of level of artists and some of the mid-range ones yeah. that stop them becoming that level of artists, mm. you know. I mean, Elton, I mean, a bit wild, Elton, you know. Yeah, he's just his last tour. Yes, he's on, he's yeah. on the last leg of it, actually. Yeah. yeah, so good guy, Elton. We have this debate in the golf world all the time. Hogan, Tiger, Nicholas, you know, who's the greatest? And you, you know what our answer would be. Yeah. In your world, I'm going to say that it's probably Elvis, Beatles, and Rolling Stones. That may be uh, uh, your yeah. Nicholas Hogan. Hogan uh, yeah, I would Tiger. say, uh, you know, for me, the Beatles are probably number one because they mm -hmm. opened opportunity for me. Elvis, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. You know, just unbelievable. And I think then, after that, I would say Sinatra. Okay. You know, because Sinatra, just his style. And, you know, he, Sinatra, Clint Eastwood, Ben Hogan, mm -hmm. they all had the same thing, really. They were independent thinkers. They took their their talent mm -hmm. and, and they drove it, but they drove it the way they wanted to drive it. You mm -hmm. know, they're all independent thinkers, mm -hmm. you know, and they took the rough with the smooth. Right. You know, I always say, I always said, you know, when I, people interview me about certain things, you know, I take responsibility for my failure and my success. You know, I, I believe it was my failure and I believe it was my success. I take full responsibility for it all. I don't blame anybody else because if I wanted to blame somebody else, I'm wasting five minutes. Yeah. That's all I'm doing. I'm just wasting five minutes blaming somebody. Yeah. You know, I accept full responsibility and those boys did too. So you, you think with the Beatles, if they, if they, they took off like a rocket ship, like nobody's ever seen before and we'll probably never oh, see it again. We'll never see that again, no. Do you think if they have a more steady trajectory up, they last longer or it was just, that's what it was. They were a 10 year band and that's what they're gonna be. I mean, it's a long time, but it's- Yeah, I think, I think in the record business, if you get seven, eight, nine glory years, that's you don't. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the Rolling Stones, although they've gone on for 50 years, you know, they're not in their glory years, sure, are sure. they? Yeah. You know, they're out there playing massive concerts still, which is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But they're playing Get Off of My Cloud. You know, they're playing songs from 60 years ago, basically. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're playing a few new ones too, but that's, you know. That's when you go get a beer, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so, um, you, know, you know, I think uh, history would suggest that with uh, a lot of those artists, although they can have longer careers and still go and do concerts and, and play the hits and do all that, their glory years, if you get seven, eight years, that's you. Mm -hmm. You've done well. Mm -hmm. yeah. You've done really well. Because yeah. it moves. You, you, As generations come, it moves. So do you think the Beatles recognize that? Or do you think they just it was, it was just time? Lennon and McCartney needed to, to go on their own? I, I think it was... I think it was time. I think Yoko had come around and, you know, although everyone now denies that Yo Yoko kind of split the Beatles. I don't know that she split the Beatles, but she moved Lennon's mentality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whereas Lennon and McCartney were joined at the hip for all those years, when when Yoko came in, John went somewhere else. And so the songwriting partnership was obviously mm -hmm. beginning to be more and more distant. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it was time. Yeah, sure. sure I remember when they played on the roof, though, the last, did you ever see the footage of them playing? Yeah, yeah, I think that, that recording to Get Back is one of my favorite recordings of yeah. all time. Yeah, yeah. And they stopped the traffic in the streets, you know, because everybody was wandering around the streets looking, because it was on the news, mm -hmm. you know. Everyone's looking, trying to, mm -hmm. you know, see That's where this noise is coming from, and they know it's the Beatles. I thought that was a really neat factor in your book where you said that, is it NEMS, is how you say it, N E M S? Yeah. And that was where Brian Epstein's office was, right? Yeah, and I was interviewed there for my first job. That's in the, amazing. The record. Uh, NEMS stands for North Eastern Music Stores. Okay. Oh, huh. Yeah. So, Liverpool, obviously, okay. northeast. Okay. 
I'm um, really bad at English geography, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, we'll bring well, him you know Birmingham's time. in the middle of the country now, don't yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> and Warsaw's nine miles away. From it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, we are almost out of time. You have to come back for a part two because we didn't cover Impulse, we didn't cover Jive. You've got 87 hit records. We didn't talk about them. So I feel like we need to do a part two. Absolutely. We just scratched the I never the knew, surface. by the way, that I had 87 number one records until a young girl from uh, college, um, they they did uh, this... Uh, Interview a few years ago. Yeah, I yeah, remember Yeah, they it. did this thing on me, you know, and, and she said, do you know how many number one records you've got and had? And I went, no, I'd say more than 30, less than 40. And she went, no, 87. Wow. I was flabbergasted. Wow. Yeah, that you just know, shows so, hey, how hey. it wasn't about that, was it? That just shows how it was about you living your life and, and doing what makes you happy. It wasn't about the numbers. That's impressive. Yeah, I didn't. You know, when, whenever I had a number one record, the, the day that it went to number one was great, you know, and the, mm. the staff at the record label would probably have a little drinks or party or whatever, or sometimes there'd be a function with the artist. But the um, the following day, I'm looking for the next one. Right. You know, that was that great. It was number one. It's number one now, and hopefully it'll be number one for two or three weeks. I've got to go find another. Well, I, I love that. And instead of, like, you know, sitting in your glory and like being like, oh my God, I'm here, I've made it, I've done it. You're just like, all right, here we go. Well, let, we're expecting yeah. this, so let's Thank keep you. going. Let's go. This is what we're here Get for. Get ready. See, to me, that's the common thread of great producers, great artists, and, and Hogan, right? I mean, yeah. he, he, he he just kept trying to chase perfect. And, and um, I'm a big fan of Hogan, by Well, the way, I'm, he know. would be a big fan of yours too, because I think that's kind of the same, the same mentality he had was, um, it's never gonna, I, I'm, I won one U.S. Open. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit there and no. ride around in a car and show my trophy. I'm gonna go after the next one. So. Yeah, and I like you. Don't talk too much. <laughs> you know, I kind of thought that. You know, as I learned and grew in the industry, I thought I'm not gonna talk too much. You know, I'll, I'll wait until there's something important to say and then I'll say it. You know, so and I love that Hogan. He don't talk too much. He just goes and does it. You know, in my book, good on you. I haven't learned that lesson yet. <laughs> you keep talking, Joe. It's it's obviously working. It's going well. Well, we really appreciate your time. Like Josie says, we're going to have you back, and we may we may oh. talk Sue into because I know she's a, a, a cool life too. So we want to talk about that. But we really appreciate it, and, yeah. and great meeting you. And uh, we'll thank see you very much. And uh, thank you for the uh, invite. Oh, absolutely. Absolute, absolute pleasure. Absolutely. And my wife is far more talented than I ever was. Well, and, and your daughter's more talented than me. So, so yeah, we're, we're really yeah, Josie too. Yeah, She's, yeah. you know, I'm not playing golf with Josie that often because, you know, I just get whooped. I, I, I did that once and I'll never do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, we stick with that one. <laughs> <laughs>